Welcome to Get After It PDX, a down-to-earth podcast featuring honest conversations with inspiring people in the creative hotbed of Portland, Oregon. Recorded live and on location in Portland, let's welcome the co-founder of Y-East Wolfpack and the host of Get After It PDX, Willie McBride. Hey folks, a quick note before we get started. The Get After It PDX podcast is brought to you by the support of our friends at the Aimsure Distilling Company, a new distillery focused on bringing people together through great flavors and a warm environment. They love the way spirits taste, but more importantly, they love what they do. Spirits bring people together to make memories, build bridges, and crystallize the moment opening up in early 2020 in Northeast Portland. Welcome folks. We are here with our fourth guest, Faith Briggs, who is a runner and filmmaker. We are very happy to have you here, Faith. Yeah, thank you. I'm super excited. Nice. We saw you last night for the Adventure Time Film Fest here at the Hoxton, in which one of your films was shown, Brotherhood of Skiing. That was awesome. Thank you. Such a cool thing. So we're going to talk about that and about the work you do, but we really want to start back in the day with uh, where you grew up and, and sort of your childhood and what got you started. So tell us about that. It's a broad, <laughs> broad topic. Where did you? Where were you born and raised? That's the. It's. It should be the easiest question, but we moved actually every from the time I was born until. Um, I graduated from college. I'd never lived anywhere for more than four years. So we moved every like three, four years, sometimes every one to three years. Um, but home for most of my family is um, in the Hudson Valley, New York. So when you say Hudson River Valley, were you in a rural setting, like in a small town, or what was the deal? Yeah, yes. So that, that area, so where my dad's from is Newburgh, New York. Um, and the town next to that is called Cornwall. And there's a summer camp there called Camp Olmstead that my sister's godparents, who are my parents' best friends, ran for years. And so my parents would come and either be co-directors or assistant directors or program directors um, with them for the summer because my parents are both in education, so they'd have their summers off. Um, and that was at the foot of Storm King Mountain. Um, and so, yeah, we would walk through a small town and take the kids to a museum or go skip rocks in the Hudson kind of thing mm. and um, hike what I thought was like the longest hike ever up to the top of, um, of Storm King. How long was that hike? Probably like two and a half hours. <laughs> oh, two and a half hours. That's mm-hmm. a lot. Yeah. I mean, when you're kid, like a, a kid. Hour. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it was exciting by the time that my parents would let me and my cousins go do it by myself. Um, what age was that when you started venturing solo to the top of Storm King? Probably around 10 or 11, I think. Um, you know, no one's really out there. <laughs> so it's pretty yeah. safe. And we definitely got ourselves into trouble thinking that we'd, you know, sprain an ankle and then have to figure out how to get back down or see a snake or that kind of thing. But, yeah. So some of your earliest memories are in the outdoors. Definitely, this, this camp experience. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. It was it's it's it was the most consistent thing in my life because we moved all the time, but we were always back at that camp. So when I think of where I grew up, that camp is the reason why the Hudson Valley like feels like home because otherwise we 
my parents just got married very young and were like finishing college and starting their first jobs and trying to find good fits in in their careers and so we were just three kids kind of like along for that journey <laughs> as you said as teachers they were just chasing different job opportunities or mm -hmm. yeah my dad um is currently a professor at saint olaf um in minnesota um but has gone back and forth between teaching ceramics and teaching um our education and being a pastor um so he was kind of <laughs> yeah doing both um and he's very focused on the connection between art and spirituality um like very focused on that <laughs> Such a cool intersection with all these things. Wow. Huh. So this begs the question then. So there was a more more of a spiritual focus, not necessarily a religious focus. As or, uh, that's open. Well, it's 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 actually really interesting. I think that um, like I get that there is definitely this split between like religion and spirituality, and I'm kind of I kind of. I find myself kind of sad that religion gets such a bad rap, but I'm also very aware that so much terrible stuff has happened in the name of religion. Um, and it's mostly like it being taken out of context and used as this weapon that it was never intended to be used. But that's been happening for centuries. Um, so when people like don't want to be religious, I totally get it. So I think, I think it was a combination. I mean, yes. My sister learned the Jewish alphabet before the English alphabet. We, my dad, like is <laughs> fluent in so Hebrew. Judaism. Um, yeah, but also we, I mean, listen. Like Pima Chodron uh, has probably been one of the most influential voices in my life. Thich Nhat Khan, everyone. So, I mean, I think my dad, despite us being raised Christian um, and Baptist specifically, and we have a lot of appreciation for like the ritual and symbolic importance of the black church um, in America, um, despite the flaws that have always also existed in all these communities. Um, so I think I had an understanding of spirituality with appreciation for religion as well, all, all religions, and like what they kind of do for people. And did they tie that to nature? I mean, obviously they were involved with this camp, which was largely nature outdoor based, but did they directly draw that comparison to you or that connection with you? You know, strangely enough, I don't really think that they did. I don't think that my parents did necessarily. Um, which is which is really interesting when I think about it now because I draw those, but I think partially camp was very busy. Like we weren't like bringing kids out to meditate, you know, we were really just, like trying to keep them <laughs> together. Um, I think now I, I draw that connection a lot more. It's not that they didn't see it. My dad's a very meditative um, individual, but I think I kind of started drawing that connection myself later on. But, but my dad did, I think the reason why he was back and forth so much between pastoring and teaching, I think that there was this understanding. My grandfather's also a Baptist pastor, um, and that's a big part of that side of my family. Um, I think it, it took a second for my dad, by a second I mean years, but <laughs> it took a little while to realize that like believing in God and having some kind of spiritual uh, 
calling didn't necessarily mean having to be a pastor. So I think like understanding that you could feel those things and, and still have like a spiritual practice as a teacher was something that was a, a lesson that took a few years to understand. So for me, like some of the things that I feel, I think when I'm out in different places, I recognize them as being like, oh, God, cool. You know, and it doesn't have to be like in a church specifically. Um, haven't been to a church in a long time and the last church I was a part of was this like really cool weird like Judaic leaning collective in New York where people were like you are going you practice the Friday Sabbath um but yeah I, I think it's a big part of our life and always has been but it's always looked very different and unique there was artistic inspiration directly derived from outdoor experience. From my dad, you're saying? Yeah. Well, he said he yeah, was... Yeah, yeah, actually. So he taught ceramics, but he also mm -hmm. was a pastor. So mm -hmm. well, I'm asking, did, did he talk to you about that? Like getting our creative inspiration from outdoors? Or? Yes and no. My, a lot of my dad's art looks like, um, like sea anemones or polyps and things like that so there was certainly um i'll show you at some point his art it's very cool and so there was definitely an understanding of like the art that is in nature um i think he's always been very in awe of what nature can create very cool and your mom was also a teacher <laughs> yeah my mom um finished college while we were younger and then went back and finished her master's and then started teaching um, while we were in school as well. And she's also in her own right an artist. Um, she's a seamstress and like still makes a lot of her own clothing. She quilts, she like made a story quilt. She, she made quilts from like drawings that she had us draw based on interviews that she did with my grandparents and stuff like that. She's pretty incredible. <laughs> that sounds really cool. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, my parents are, I'm always, I, I like to call them my best gift. I love sharing them with people. Um, and like half my friends are just like, are your parents gonna be around? <laughs> They're really wonderful. Oh, that's awesome. You call yourself a runner. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. at what point did these outdoor forays and hiking up Storm King Mountain lead you into running? I, I, I come from a running family. Um, so like track was always known, like track was like a known entity in my house, probably as much as like God was. <laughs> it's like, my dad's like, why are you saying that? So both parents um, were? Yeah, my mom, runners. actually my mom, she would, she would be upset if I didn't say that she was a cheerleader. Um, she was a pretty intense cheerleader. She grew up in Florida and they did like the throwing and the building of the pyramids and all of that stuff. And we spent a lot of time making fun of her and saying that cheerleading was not a sport, it was an activity. But um, my mom, um, and then she would like drop a split in the kitchen when we were like 10 and we'd have to shut up. Um, but yeah, she ran track a little bit. And then on my dad's side, um, my dad's one of six and all the brothers were like track football and wrestling. Um, and so I kind of grew up with like Briggs's run track. My older sister ran track. Um, so I think she started on a team when she was probably about 11, but we were always like going to run on little tracks and parks and stuff, even when my dad was um, still in school. Um, Cause he did, 
<laughs> I'm laughing because he's like, <laughs> my dad did a bachelor to a bachelor's. I guess he did the bachelor's before my sister's born, but two masters and a PhD while we were younger. <laughs> so we spent a lot of time at universities. Sounds like a smart guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so were you like on the track team in high school or? Yeah, I started running track in seventh grade. Um, so I was probably 11-ish because I'm young for my grade. Um, I ran modified track in seventh grade. And then I was a, I was actually, um, I was a swimmer. I was like very intense about swimming um, and track was a little bit second. Um, it wasn't as important to me. Partially, I think I just wanted to do something differently than what my sister was doing. Um, but the way things worked in Cornwall, <clears throat> Cornwall, New York, which is where we moved back to New York from Massachusetts when I was about, I guess, going into the seventh grade. Um, and there wasn't a varsity swim, there wasn't a JV swim team, like a modified swim team. So in order to swim in the eighth grade, I had to like do a physical fitness test and try out and make the varsity team. And then like, because I'd already done that, I could run varsity track as well. Um, much the chagrin of my older sister um, mm -hmm. at the time. So we were on the same team um, in eighth and ninth grade and I ran the four by one. I was a hurdler, uh, high hurdles, 400 meter hurdles, high jump. I basically was trying to do whatever my sister wasn't doing, but at the end of the day, I'm a 400 meter runner. I had a great team in high school and college. Actually, two of my teammates um, are here in Portland now. Kate Grace, who happens to be an Olympian, <laughs> and um, Caitlin yeah. Hudson, uh, live, live, all live here in Portland, strangely enough now, which is really very cool. But those are my college teammates, yeah. So you went to Hotchkiss for sophomore, junior, senior. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And how, what was that like leaving, going to boarding school, leaving the fam? I, I loved it. Um, but I have to say, boarding school is really hard. Um, for a lot of different people, and I think particularly it depends on what kind of support you have coming from, from home, and I'm really appreciative of my parents. Like, I, Hotchkiss is an amazing school. Um, it's, it's also like, you, I was around people richer than I knew was possible. <laughs> like, it's one of those like college preparatory schools that feeds people into Ivies and always kind of has, and um, I definitely, was out of my comfort zone. Like I showed up and people were wearing like double popped polos and Jack Rogers sandals and like all, all of these brands I didn't know existed. I was like, why are there dogs all over people's clothing? Like, I'm so confused. <laughs> it was like a whole new weird world. But, um, and it was very difficult for a lot of the students of color specifically. Most of them were in um, preparatory programs like ABC and Oliver and Prep for Prep that helped them do like summer classes and kind of took kids out of public schools in New York or Gary and threw them into these um, boarding schools that were like stoked to have diversity but didn't really know how to support people once they got there. Um, so <clears throat> realizing that suddenly like you're not around your language, the sounds of your street, the kind of food you're used to eating and you're like in this tiny little campus where you're not allowed to leave in Connecticut um, can be really difficult for people. And my parents were able to be like, they kind of set it up as an anthropology experiment for me. Um, <clears throat> so for me, I actually, my dad kind of introduced this concept of the nonchalance of wealth and um, was like, what 
does that mean? What does it mean to know that you will have a job when you graduate? What does it mean to know that you might have a car? What is the nonchalance or the ability to relax that comes with knowing that you're gonna be okay? Um, and that was formative, um, but it, it particularly helped me navigate that school very differently than a lot of other people were navigating it. And I didn't really, for whatever reason, I think also because of track, my confidence very much came from track and I knew that's what I was doing there. Like I had no doubt that like, I was on a partial scholarship based on track and my um, family's background. And so I kind of had a thing already. Um, I wasn't like as, I don't know, I wasn't as, susceptible to the peer pressure based on the fact that I didn't really feel as much that I needed to fit in or prove why I was there. Just the general peer pressure. Yeah, it's hard, it's weird. Yeah. I, I mean, like, I had friends yeah, that came from like, school. oh my God, even like, I, there were like pressures that I didn't, you know, realize were people's like parents were, or who, and obviously it's not like all rich people are like this. I, a lot of my friends had amazing families that I spent a lot of time with in boarding school, but just like pressures to represent their family in certain ways based on who they were supposed to be in the world was something really different than what I had um, encountered previously. And uh, it was eye-opening to be there, but I loved it. I mean, I like loved it. My roommate, <laughs> my high school roommate and I, like she called her mom like every single day and I called my parents like every two weeks and they'd be like, ah, nice to hear from you. <laughs> um, and I also started traveling then. Um, so Hotchka sent me to Panama the summer that I was 15. I spent two months there, um, started learning Spanish there and then went to Honduras for two months when I was 16. Um, kind of that's when I got the, the bug for that as well. So years later you wrote, or you have done some writing about privilege. Obviously white privilege is a whole nother topic, but privilege in general. So you consider yourself having grown up with privilege? I definitely or... can, I can definitely recognize what my privilege is, you know? And I think um, for me, a lot of that happened um, one, I, so I'm biracial, my mom's white, my dad's black, and when my mom and dad got married, my grandparents on my mom's side disowned her. They've since come around, but I grew up very aware of race and racism and identity and those kind of things in my household, and um, a lot of really, I would say, good understanding about why people, how people's fears inform those things. Um, so it was never like, I, I, didn't, I didn't grow up like hating my grandparents. Um, there was a lot of explanation as to why, why people are afraid of different things um, and people that are different from them. And my parents put all of these like amazing books into my hands when I was little about like being a biracial kid and having a mixed race family and um, all of that really helped me a lot. Um, I always find it surprising when people, and I guess not surprising is the right word, but I'm just always like, kind of like, come on, dude, when people can't recognize what their own privilege is, right? Because I, um, you know, I come from a family that didn't have family support, that I grew up on food stamps. Um, you know, we, my parents struggled a lot to just like, my mom didn't finish college and had to go back and finish college and was like working at a laundromat and working at a bowling alley and that kind of thing when I was growing up. And yet, 
my parents were able to give me so much based on like their love of education based on you know they they were always like despite the fact they were going to debt on credit cards we always had a computer you know that kind of thing was super important to them um and so for me i i i recognize that i have extreme educational privilege and that based on who i am and the way that i look and the way that i carry myself and the way that i talk people a lot of times have to listen to me um in ways that my cousins who walk into a room who are darker than i am who don't have the same education or you know grammar that i do won't be treated and won't be listened to um and, and when they walk into the same room so i'm very aware of that and i think um based on that i've always had like a sense of responsibility to um i just think talk about a lot about representation and what it means because i don't think that the way that i speak necessarily makes me smarter than anyone else it doesn't give me more life experience it doesn't give me more wisdom it just means that i know how to speak a certain language to be respected um and so i think about privilege in that sense of like people need to calm down because <laughs> every time someone says privilege like everyone starts kind of like freaking out They're like i work hard it's like having privilege does not mean that you don't work hard and and um what it means is that like all of us have things that have given us um, some help, even that, that nonchalance of wealth thing. Like, not growing up stressed out about money means you have less stress. <laughs> we, we know that like stress affects people's lives and their ability to just like be happy um, every day and that kind of thing. Like, I, I'm, well, I mean, I, I have friends that can't think about their work without knowing that they're gonna have to support their, they, they now have to support their family. They're now putting younger siblings through college, you know? So it's a privilege to be able to have whatever job you want. You know, it's a privilege to be able to fly home on an off weekend and um, visit a parent or visit a friend. It's a privilege to be able to go to six bachelorettes and weddings last summer, which I did, you know? So I think like, it doesn't mean that um, people don't work hard, but even like our our sports are a privilege. You know what I mean? Like I completely understand that. Like, if I wanted to go skiing this weekend, I would. You know, maybe it wouldn't be very smart <laughs> based on where I'm at right now. But like, I can absolutely do that. Um, so I don't know. I, I I do think a lot about privilege. My and and just definitions and words in general. It's my hope to help people have better conversations um, with a lot of the work that I'm, I'm doing and, and to be able to have a conversation about privilege without everyone like freaking out and getting really defensive and thinking that someone thinks that they're like, they either don't work hard or they're like racist somehow because I think a lot of times like certain, certain words, um, I don't know, they, they just like, they're, what's the word? Not charged certain words are really charged and without shared definitions it can be difficult for people you know when people find out i'm a filmmaker they're like oh what what, what kind of work do you do and um <clears throat> i've always basically thought that like representation was the best way to explain um i have a lot of questions about like whose stories are being told why are they being told how are they being told who's sharing those stories um and the the 
one of the ways of, of explaining what I'm interested in that I've come up with over the years is like if you're watching TV and there's a mother on TV or there's three different mothers on TV, it gives you an idea of like, oh, these are three different uh, visions of motherhood. These are three different ways that you could potentially be a mother. If only those three exist, then, you know, not that you're completely informed by television, but like we're seeing those. If 12 different kinds of mothers and families and family dynamics exist, then you're getting a wider range of what's possible. Um, in college, I studied African-American studies and film studies, and I focused specifically on black female representation in film. And I was very interested in how, despite decades of change, I felt like these uh, caricatures of um, containing images um, still existed and that there were only like three or four different ways in which black women were being shown and I was really interested in who else could exist, what other kinds of characters, what other kinds of stories um, and I still find myself frustrated sometimes with a few years back it was like Django and Seven Years a Slave and even you know I love I worked for three years for author James McBride and he won the National Book Award for The Good Lord Bird which is a hilarious and wonderful book about um, John Brown but it wasn't lost on me the fact that all of these films that were getting recognition were set in the past they were set in slavery they weren't about contemporary black lives so it was like we're comfortable telling these stories if they're in the past but we don't wanna see just more contemporary stories. And I, I find that to be changing a lot and it's really exciting. Um, I still think we have a, a long way to go in terms of representation. And I think it's, um, it's also very hard for people to learn about folks that they didn't grow up near. Um, and when all they see are these controlling images then they think that that's what people are like. Um, so yeah, I want people to feel seen and I want people to see other people that look like them doing things that maybe they didn't think was possible for them. And that's really exciting. Um, and it's really exciting for me to be able to, like I, I do a lot of work where I'm on camera, um, but the goal for me is always kind of to put other people on camera. And um, I kind of see it more of a, a means to an end where if that's going to help me have more um, power over storytelling, and um, then that's really exciting. But like for my film Brotherhood of Skiing, that's what was so exciting about producing that. Um, as a producer, like I got to call people up and make them feel comfortable and see how they felt about sharing their story and having people show up at their house. And um, I just I love that part of it. I love trying to find stories that I think would should be shared. One quote that I read of yours that uh, I think is very meaningful, especially now, uh, says that you think being involved in this process, meaning telling people's stories, is the best way to promote needed conversations in these fractured times. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I think that I felt... Um, when when Trump was elected, I just felt really stuck. Um, and I think partially that was because I realized like I actually didn't know anyone who was voting for Trump. I didn't know a single person. And I found that to be really problematic because it meant that I was out of touch with what was going on, you know, for 
um, like I was completely blindsided. I know a lot of people weren't blindsided, but I was I, I was completely blindsided. I just didn't think it was possible. And I guess I didn't want to think it was possible. Um, so I think I kind of like paused for a little while and because I used to like fight with people on Facebook like all the time. I was like going in really before I started working at Discovery Channel and I was a, I, I was a freelancer and I had more time and uh, when I was in grad school and stuff but I what I came back to I think was like words how you can say one word and people have really different understandings of what that word meant and I realized I was like oh if we can't even come to like an agreement on what words mean how can we have conversations um, and so I was really kind of stuck by that for a while and then came back to the importance of trying to have good conversations and um, I think a lot of times my approach isn't so much like and 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 sharing people's stories helps with this it's not so much like you should be thinking this or you should be thinking that but it's kind of like have you thought of this or just like let's listen to someone else and, and hopefully like we'll be able to learn you know in a way that doesn't make us feel immediately defensive and so I try to give people the benefit of the doubt. And I think also like being biracial and having the upbringing that I had, um, I don't necessarily jump to conclusions that people are malicious. Um, Cause I had to, you know, I had to try to like understand um, where my grandparents were coming from in order to have a relationship with them later on in my life. Um, and you have a relationship with them now? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not quite as good as my sister, because she's just better at being in touch with everyone. But, <laughs> yeah, I do. Um, and, you know, with cousins and aunts and uncles. And we have a lot of family stories, like, around race and relationships that have really come <laughs> 360, um, which is cool. Um, yeah, yeah, we have a very um, mixed bunch of folks, um, family and friends and family by choice. And I grew up really surrounded by a lot of different looking folks that believed and thought and prayed differently. And that's been really cool. I'd imagine that seeing firsthand people's ability to change perspectives gives you inspiration that it's possible for other people, which in turn probably fuels your desire to do the work you do. Definitely, definitely. I mean, it's not that I don't, so, <laughs> we live in a racist context. That's the history of our country. Um, it's systemic, it's historic, and there's residue of that. And some people don't see it, and some people have to see it every single day. And so hopefully with better conversations we can understand that other people's experiences are different than, than ours are and have some empathy for that um, and some understanding of that and like want to be co-conspirators and making that be better. Um, but yeah, I, I definitely know there are a lot of hateful folks out there, um, but I don't walk around the world um, expecting them necessarily. There's a really wonderful um, rabbi, <laughs> Abraham Joshua Hessel, Heschel quote about like always being surprised in the face of injustice and like I think like even though I 
I'm not quote unquote surprised, I'm still like shocked every time. And I think it's really important to, to stay shocked um, and not because just Because you be want to like, believe in yeah, I the totally. possibility of inherent good. Totally, yeah, absolutely. Like I, I find hope to be super important because the opposite is like too bleak. I just don't, I, I, can't, I can't live that way. <laughs> like that's too much for me. So now that we've gotten on the topic of race, um, sort of a natural segue to then talk about now that you live in Portland, Oregon, <laughs> which is known as not an extremely diverse place in that way. So you moved from New York, a very diverse place, to Portland. You were working at the Discovery Channel, <laughs> and then you got an opportunity with Columbia and their director of toughness. Yeah, so I was, I, as I said, my background's in documentary film. I studied African American studies and film studies in undergrad. I then started film school at USC and ended up um, taking a year off, moving back to New York, and after a little bit of time transferring into the journalism school at NYU and finishing my master's in documentary journalism um, instead of film school. So um, I, after a few years of finishing grad school, working for James McBride, um, who's just like the best. <laughs> I had so much fun working with him and I was like teaching digital arts after school and managing a restaurant in Brooklyn and kind of just like figuring out how I could try to make independent um, films. I got an opportunity, uh, <laughs> shout out to my mom loving LinkedIn. Um, my mom was like obsessed with LinkedIn and I was always like, mom, like no one's using LinkedIn like that. Um, and I got this cold call from the Discovery Channel uh, via LinkedIn one day and ended up um, being brought in to work in the newly formed documentary department at Discovery um, where we were doing environmental storytelling, um, which was kind of funny because in my interview, they asked me, um, what I thought about conservation or what I thought about environmentalism. And at the time, my answer there was that um, I thought it was for privileged people who didn't have any real problems and that I had to worry about people and that that was my focus. And <laughs> five years later, uh, it's, it is my focus. Um, so it's been, there's a lot of learning um, about how <clears throat> conservation work um, and uh, specifically changes in the environment, like how much they do, how much they are intertwined with people and their stories and their uh, ability to, to live free, happy lives. Um, so that was a big change. But um, I was, first I was the assistant to the head of the department, and then I was working um, more uh, in acquisition. So uh, finding out who's making films, who has dream projects related to the environment, um, what could be good fits for us and then we were looking for films for Discovery Animal Planet and Science and then um, slowly trying to find films for TLC um, as well so it was it was a great experience working at Discovery and I definitely thought I was going to stay there for a long time um, and then through something I did with the National Parks Foundation called the Find Your Park Expedition that I'd heard about from my friend Andia Winslow I went out to Yosemite and uh, was doing some trail running out there, which like kind of goes back to um, I was I was running with Black Roses in New York, and uh, the captain Knox Robinson did something called Bin Trail, 
which was a trail running weekend up um, in Beacon, New York. And it was so strange to be finally running trails in the area that I had grown up, which I had never thought to run because I thought running was for the track. Were so those your like, first sort of trail running First trail running, yeah, totally, totally. First trail runs were um, up at, in Beacon at Breakneck Ridge and... I remember, I remember being at this certain point and I was like scrambling up these rocks and I like turned around and looked at Knox like, what am I doing here? And he just went like, shh. <laughs> um, and then a few months later I was in Yosemite and um, anytime I had a chance to run, I was just running and it was freaking the best. I was like, this is crazy cool. Um, but I ended up getting the job offer from Columbia Sportswear and I had to quit my job at Discovery and move out here in two weeks. And obviously my bosses didn't know that I was applying to go do a nine month stint elsewhere and I almost didn't take it. I was very concerned about the warnings that I was getting, um, that I was ruining my career at one point. like you're leaving the independent documentary community to go sell clothing. Like, oh, yeah, wow. I, I just- were giving you some grief. Yeah, definitely. Like they were like, why are you, why are you ruining your career? Like that's not, marketing isn't real storytelling. No one's gonna trust you as a filmmaker. So I, and I believed all of that. Um, but you still, still did it. <laughs> yeah. You take, took the lead. Yeah, it was too, it was too crazy to not like, the idea that like we want you to come out here and we're gonna pay you to travel and go on adventures for nine months around the world. Um, it was too cool. Like I was just like, all right, hopefully this pans out. But that's a really big deal to to make that decision in the face of people not only saying that you're hurting your career, but actually saying that you're choosing less meaningful a less meaningful path. That's a pretty big deal to deal with that pressure. Definitely. And I'm honestly so glad that um, they handled it that way. <laughs> because that, they, that people said those things? Totally. If people hadn't discouraged me so much in ways that were really unsupportive, I wouldn't have realized that the environment that I was in wasn't supportive. Directors of Toughness campaign was so cool. And I got to meet the most amazing people. The, the two cinematographers on Brotherhood of Skiing um, were the cinematographers on uh, the Directors of Toughness campaign. Mm -hmm. And they're the best. And um, I just, I love working with them. And I got to try all of these new things and all of these hard things. And um, I got introduced to so many different sports, um, including fly fishing. And I now work at a fly fishing uh, focused nonprofit um, called Soul River that brings veterans and inner city from Portland to the outdoors. Um, so it completely changed my life. Trekking in Colombia, we went fly fishing in Kamchatka, Russia. Um, it was, I mean, it was crazy. It was absolutely crazy. And they really did try to keep it a secret most of the time. So it was really like dropped on us a few days in advance. So you would just that. be flown somewhere and they'd be like block off the 11th to the 18th or something like that and then you'd kind of like be given these clothes and be like i guess i'm going somewhere cold like we were we were trekking out in the yukon and literally sleeping in snow shelters that we were building we're not sleeping and keeping 
a fire lit all night because we were in a lean-to. Like, it was madness. I think when we were up there, the guiding unit that was helping our filmmakers were like, oh, are we gonna go get them now? They're like, no. They're like, you're actually leaving them in a lean-to overnight? And they're like, yeah. It's just like crazy. Um, you and how many others? One other person. Just one other person. Yeah, yeah. Oh. So I had a um, partner, Mark James Chase, who was also selected through this application process to be the other director of toughness. And the two of us traveled with the film crew. Overall, that dynamic was worked out well. Totally, yeah. I mean, there's definitely sometimes where I was like, man, I'd love a lady around or another person of color. Uh, <laughs> but but it, it, it definitely, I think, impacted my trajectory here in realizing that so many places where I found myself, I was the only woman or I was the only person of color and um, really wanting to address that. But it left me with a lot of conversation that I wanted to have, which was really exciting because then I got involved with all of these people on via social media who were having these conversations and doing this work and got connected with these platforms like Melanin Basecamp and Outdoor Afro and Brown Girls Climb. And it was so cool to realize that this community of folks was out there and, and we had been out there and, um, you know, and we're trying to do uh, work to make the outdoors a more inclusive and inviting space and, ha and and make the history of conservation more recognizable of people of color's efforts and stories in that in that history because it's been really uh, whitewashed yeah so despite Portland being not very diverse <laughs> I'm still here you're still here so yeah when did the official director of toughness program end it ended so it started in november of 2016 i moved out here november 20th 2016 and it ended at the end of september 2017 and probably until june i was still planning on going back to new york um and kind of right in portland summer started to kind of be like i like this place and i started to feel like i had enough really good friends out here that i could do it um because i it wasn't just about leaving New York. It was like, why am I leaving my friends? Um, and then I met some just awesome people out here, or I, or I had met some awesome people out here who were just runners and deep thinkers and cool folks to hang out with. And we were, I started having more of a routine. I moved into the house that I live in now that was really a game changer. Because I, I mean, I did like three or four months of like, Craigslisting rooms and Airbnb spots and like trying to decide what my life would look like out here because that was the other thing there's no channels right like I wasn't going to work at Netflix or Discovery or something like that if I stayed here and I didn't really totally know how to like pick back up on what I'd been doing before or if that was possible um, but yeah I mean Portland it's super white and it was definitely something that it took like I knew that but going back to New York to visit or for my birthday last year and stuff like that and I like woke up stay at my sister's house my sister and I lived 10 minutes walking from each other in Brooklyn at the time and it was like I would get up I would go downstairs I would say hi to neighbors I would go on the bus I would go into a coffee shop I'd like walk to you know my friend's house or whatever and be like oh I haven't seen a white person all day like and it wasn't that I didn't want to see white people but I just didn't understand how different things looked 
and until I was like totally back. And it was weird. Portland's weird. Portland's like no, so it's like the exact <laughs> flip. You <laughs> could go all day and be like, I haven't seen a person of color oh in the whole thing. Shout out to my friend Prince who lives here, who I haven't seen in a while, but he used to. I worked briefly at the athletic community. Um, here in, in Portland, and um, he would like pop in. I'd be like, ah, oh, man, if it wasn't for you, <laughs> just wouldn't see any black people all day, um, which was totally different from what I was used to. And um, Portland's hilarious because you know we've got this like super liberal identity out here, and so I feel like when I walk in places, people are just like stoked that I exist. <laughs> They're just like huge smiles, and it's like some kind of validation of like. Oh who we are um but i, I actually I, I kind of found that that's even in the two years that i've been here it's been changing i i definitely notice it and i can only imagine how much it changed in the past 10 years um yeah any city that's growing this rapidly you would hope has some some amount of diversity coming in totally yeah yeah and you know what i what i like about one of the things i like about my job too is that i get to interact with people who are from here who are people of color that are from here because i think a lot of the times like based on portland's crazy housing dynamics etc like a lot of those folks have been pushed to the outskirts for years over and over again and a lot of new people coming in don't have aren't really presented with opportunities to um interact with uh communities of color that aren't right downtown here and so I really appreciate that I get to I don't know it just feels very grounding to be involved in Portland um significantly because um, otherwise I think it would be really hard for me to be here and just feel like I was part of this like wave of gentrification but I wasn't doing anything to connect with the folks whose home this has been like far before but the trade-off is worth it it sounds like that although Portland has has its major imperfections the proximity to trails and to these outdoor treasures like Mount Hood and the coast and all this makes it worth it. Totally. And it's worth it for me, not just because of that proximity, which is amazing, but really I think I've um, had a lot of time to uh, think about what's important to me um, and choose those things more. Uh, I, I feel more space here like not only physical space but mental space and spiritual space and like space to kind of think about my future differently and I I didn't with the hustle of New York and the grind I didn't have that kind of space to myself so it's been very difficult I think you have to work harder for stimulation here because in New York it's being like physically thrown at you like literally thrown at you (laughs) like if you're not careful every day Um, But I also feel a lot less tension that I'm navigating every day. You know, there's not like, I'm not in someone's underarm on the six train like every morning, (laughs) which is like really nice. Going to the park, I'm stoked. Like every time, every time I go in the forest park, I'm just like excited about the moss. Um, Yeah, I love it. This new identity as a trail runner has kind of come hand in hand with harrowing experiences on trail of like not knowing if I was physically capable of doing things and and having to like will myself through them and then also having these really cool experiences like meeting incredible trail running women here in Portland and just like 
chasing them around and like trying to keep up and it's been um it's been really amazing and I just I really enjoy moving into those distances um and I don't know I mean I I I joke that like after I do my next big trail running project I'm just gonna go back to being a miler (laughs) or like try to be a miler finally in my life because I was just starting to do I think the summer before I moved out here I did four mile mile long races and it was my first time doing that and I like thought it was the coolest thing so I I thought I was going to focus on that for a little while and then and then my next race was a was 100k so (laughs) a little different when you talk to running friends back in New York who are still in this road scene and track type scene do you feel like a disconnect are they like faith i don't even i can't even fathom what you're doing anymore i don't i don't think so i think that um a lot of the runners that i know are always kind of looking for what the next thing is and so trails getting way more popular and trying to get access to trails is a thing and just like for the people that i know i think maybe partially because now i'm i'm 30 um for the folks that I know who've been running for a while, the question is like, what's the new hard thing I can see if I'm capable of? And so I think that a lot of my friends are actually getting more into trail, um, which is cool. And then also, a lot of people I know are like very hyper-focused on um, marathoning and um, trying to qualify for the Olympics or trying to do all the world majors or that kind of thing and I find them to be so inspiring it's it's like the same folks I just my friends back in New York who are runners are amazing and I'm, I'm constantly inspired by them I think that's a really wonderful thing to be able to do is to introduce someone to something or invite someone to come with you and I think that more people are doing that um, so in New York I have this friend Olivia who was the only ultra marathoner that I knew um, in New York and she started this thing called Trail Women BK and you can go and run with her in Prospect Park or you can she'll bring you out to different trails in the area and and from Roses to Rue Crew um, to Harlem Run people are doing more like uh, trips to trails and bringing people to trails and introducing them to and I think that's a combination of things I think it's social media in, in one sense which can be really awesome and also kind of like hard on uh, the outdoors and that's something I'm still kind of a conversation I'm just beginning to have and, and try to understand what my place is in, in all of that I'm still at the beginning of that conversation like I'm not really comfortable with it yet um, but I think also there's all of this um, research happening now about the importance of, of being outside and like how it's literally good for you to look at trees <laughs> you know and there I, I was listening to this researcher whose name I can't remember but she lives in Philadelphia and she researches this and she says that she walks to you pin with her head up in the canopies and she's like I'll trip sometimes but I know it's important you know to be like walking to work staring up at the trees so I think as that kind of understanding is shared people are realizing the importance of um, whether you're you, you're out in a rural area or you're in a city um, spending time in green spaces and trying to make those spaces more accessible to people who need them, that there's mental health benefits to spending time outside. And you touched on Soul River before, mm-hmm. which I 
personally think it sounds like an absolutely fascinating project. So you said it's a nonprofit founded by Navy vet Chad Brown, mm-hmm. which brings vets and inner city youth to areas that are experiencing environmental threat. So what, to me, what sounds most fascinating about it is that it's sort of this mutual healing process. So it's like these people helping heal damaged, threatened environmental space, and through that process, these people also being healed in their own way. Yeah, you just nailed it. Like, that's exactly what's going that's on. such a, seems like a beautiful It's so cool. And thing. Yeah, Ch- Chad um, has really brought together these different groups that people don't think would go together, I think, like veterans and inner city youth and there's a lot, like, I think sometimes people misunderstand. They're like, oh, are you trying to get kids into the military? Like, no, <laughs> not at all. Um, it's really, like, we believe that veterans are these highly skilled, super dedicated, service-oriented individuals and that they can be incredible mentors when their focus is, like, your new mission is these kids. And um, they take it so seriously, and our youth are just so smart and so interested in science and new experiences and, and um, advocacy. We just took two youth um, to DC to talk about um, trying to have a national recreation area in Southern Oregon. They met with Senator Wyden and they met with Senator Merkley and they were talking about their personal experiences. And I, I just, I'm so excited to be able to be a support to that work and to Chad's um, vision because it I see what it does in the lives of the participants um so even though I'm not a veteran myself it's been really amazing to get involved with a community of veterans um and yeah to really like truly believe in the healing powers of spending time outside and what it means for kids that don't get a break very much to be able to sit by a river like I see it and I'm like wow you know it's there should be more experiences like this for people um so yeah, I, I love Soul River and I'm, I'm pumped to be working there. So one question is, at this point, sort of what, what's the work you're most proud of? Let's start with that. Ooh, what's the work <laughs> I'm most proud of? That is... You're doing so much, it's hard, I'm sure it's hard to single one out, but is there anything come to mind? Is... I'm, I'm, I'm very happy right now about Brotherhood of Skiing. I think not only because I'm starting to get feedback from people who are in it and they love it and that's amazing because you know in documentary filmmaking you're really asking people to open up their lives to you and as much as I've been like misquoted and this that and the third to like get it right and have people feel represented well is very exciting um and I think for me personally like I said, I thought I was dive-bombing my career when I moved out here. So to be producing a film, it, it honestly didn't hit me until I presented our film with um, Colin Erisman and Luke Pintola, our editor, when we were up at Banff. And after I like sat back down, I was like, oh, that was my film. Like, I got to do that. And that was really cool because I've been to film festivals so much as the person from the network who was, like, supporting work or, like, trying to meet filmmakers and you know I just I hadn't been there as a filmmaker myself so that was really exciting so I'm, I'm really proud of that and it, it definitely kick-started me reminded me that I could do it um it's, it's a whole nother <laughs> thing but sometimes it's like 
people's perception of what you're doing and your your own self perception of like how well or not you're doing stuff based on your own metrics can be really different and so I, I definitely sometimes need like a confidence boost and um, working with this film and um, has been a good reminder that I am a filmmaker. I'd like to ask you a question that we've been asking all the guests and that is if you're going to give advice to somebody who is trying to you know either a person or a young person whoever it may be who's trying to find a meaningful path in life because Again, really like all of our guests, it, it seems that the work you're doing is incredibly important, it's incredibly meaningful to you as well as other people, of course. And you know, through this process of trying different things and being open, you've, you've found the path. So what would you tell others who are trying to find it too? I think right now my advice is related to, and like, I've heard this a million times myself, but like, finding a good collective of people to work with who who um, can hopefully share your vision and, and help you with that work. Um, and because I think like, it's something that I have to remind myself of a lot. It's like, you don't have to do this by yourself. Um, and I struggle to ask for help. And I always feel like I'm inconveniencing people. Um, and I forget like they want to help me, you know? And um, so I think just like putting, putting it out there um, and like sharing what you're working on um, and trying to find people to work with is huge. Um, I think a lot of us, particularly who do creative work, tend to have this like embarrassed, like huddle over the thing that we're working on. And um, yeah, I don't know whether it's like fear of someone stealing our idea or like embarrassment that we're not doing it well, but I would try to encourage people to like talk about the work that you're doing and try to find people to work with who share your vision because you don't have to reinvent the wheel. You should learn from other people's experiences. You should try to find good mentors and great friends who can like talk you down when you're having that freak out moment about the work that you're doing and it's I've I've learned it like I'm still I still struggle with that but I'm finding um, filmmakers to work with and runners to run with and you know it's like there's a reason why we have training partners there's a reason why we have teams there's a, there's a reason why that collective works um, and so just like yeah trying to not do it by yourself when you don't have to think is what I would say today <laughs> as my advice. That can change. Next time we talk to you, you can, you can give different advice if you'd like. <laughs> cool. Well, thank you so much for your time. Continue doing the amazing work you're doing. We are very grateful for it. It's really inspiring and wonderful. And we look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you. Thank you. This has been awesome. It's nice to be here at the Hoxton and to hang out. And yeah, hopefully we'll be running together more soon. Too. Let's do it. This wraps up another edition of the Get After It PDX podcast. For more information about today's guest, including social media links, please check out the show notes for this episode. Thanks for listening. Now it's your turn to get out there and get after it. <laughs>